you ever wondered what it's like to sit in on a magazine editorial meeting? Well, this is your chance. You're listening to Salt Lake Speaks, a monthly podcast where our editors, writers, and staff dig deeper into stories, chat with newsmakers, and talk amongst ourselves about arts, culture, food, music, politics, or whatever else might strike our fancy. After all, we are Utah's biggest fans. This podcast was brought to you by Sun Valley Resort. Follow your path to Sun Valley. The road less traveled is more of an attitude than a place. It opens up a world of freedom and inspiration in lieu of secret trails and unassuming restaurants, although there are plenty of those here too. Whether you choose to take the unbeaten path or let the path choose you, Sun Valley Resort will be here when you're ready. Visit sunvalley.com summer today. This is Glenn Warchel, Managing Editor of Salt Lake Magazine with Salt Lake Speaks. We're talking to John DeLynn, who is a psychologist but is most famous for his work on Mormon Stories, a podcast that is listened to by thousands around the world. Uh, we talked to him about his excommunication in a first part to this interview, and you can find that on saltlakemagazine.com slash podcast. Uh, we're going to continue with that interview now. Uh, John, how, after you've been severed from your religion, in uh, your community, or, or at least that was what was attempted. How, what kind of a religion? How do you continue your spiritual life without being able to participate in the ritual and the and the and the other things that make being a Mormon being a Mormon? So there's a lot of teachings about Mormonism that I simply don't believe anymore. Pretty much most of the fundamental truth claims. I don't believe the Book of Mormon is scripture from God. I I don't believe Joseph Smith was God's prophet sent to the earth. I don't believe Thomas S. Monson is God's prophet on the earth today. Uh, I don't believe the LDS Church is God's one true church on the earth. Um, you know, those things I, I just absolutely don't believe. As far as sort of teachings about God and Jesus, I've sort of just come to realize that there are all sorts of beliefs out in the world, and everybody sort of believes, they tend to believe what they were taught and use emotion to kind of justify the beliefs that they have. And when in reality, a lot of these claims about whether or not there's a God, whether or not Jesus lived, whether or not Jesus was resurrected is really unknowable. And people say, well, I know because I feel this or that, but then why do we have so many different people feeling so many different things? I don't think feelings are a reliable way to, to know whether something happened or whether something exists. So I guess technically... That, you know, I don't like the word atheist. I just don't like what, the baggage that comes with it. And I don't love the word agnostic for the same reason. Uh, but the truth is, I, th I think we're all agnostics, you know, because I don't think anybody really knows. And so that leaves me unable to really grasp in any mainstream religious group because they all pretty much have beliefs that I think are unknowable. And I'm not interested in sort of devoting myself to a set of claims that are unknowable. So having said all that... Uh, I still value mental health. I still value spirituality. If you define spirituality as being connected to something higher, a higher sense of purpose or meaning, something greater than yourself. So um, I, you know, I, li I like meditation. I love nature. I love um, the, the works of like Eckhart Tolle or uh, Secular Buddhism. That's a podcast that I think is great. But just basic mindfulness, focus on the present moment, focus on living each day the best that I can not getting too caught up in your thoughts or in story, 
but instead figuring out what your values are and trying to live the most valued life. That's sort of meaning and spirituality for me. Uh, that makes it so I'm less worried about the afterlife. Instead of focusing on life after death, I focus on life right now. And instead of worrying about rewards in heaven, I'm, I'm worried about making the world a better place today. And I'll let the future take care of itself that way. But it, for me, it delivers an incredible sense of meaning and purpose and spirituality and happiness to just literally wake up each day and say, how do I want to make the world a better place today? Okay, let me go do that. Let me go save a marriage. Let me go prevent a, a suicide. Let me go help someone with their depression or anxiety. Uh, that's spirituality to me now. It's, it's, it's um, living a life of meaning and purpose, trying to alleviate suffering and help people find joy and meaning in life. And through that effort, it brings joy and meaning to my life. And that's, that's spirituality for me now. Yet you still claim the term Mormon. Culturally. Culturally Mormon? Like a secular Jew. Mm -hmm. pl the majority, the largest, you may know more about Judaism than I do, is my understanding is the largest branch of Judaism in the United States is Reformed Judaism. And as I understand Reformed Judaism, you don't have to believe there's a God. You don't have to believe Moses, the founder of Judaism, actually lived. They don't care about what you believe. It's about the ritual, it's about the tradition, um, and, and it's about the community. And so I'm making a community, and the ritual and tradition I hold very loosely. I still don't drink alcohol, so that's something uh, that, I, that I hold on to. But it's a cultural thing, not a doctrinal mm -hmm. thing. Well, let's take a step back before you got to this point. Uh, I guess it would have been 2014, 2015, you were excommunicated, as we discussed in the first half of this interview, in 25th, early 2015. 2015 yep. um, but that was a before that occurred. That was a very exciting period for people uh, in more intellectual Mormons to use that term, uh, and people that were hoping to see a more openness in the church. And Kate Kelly was part of that with ordained women. And could you talk a little bit about the optimism that, although you had second thoughts, there was a lot of optimism out there. I have friends who, were more, who are Mormons or Mormons of a sort who saw that as a very, very optimistic time that they would be accepted with, with faiths that somewhat diverged from the orthodoxy. Yeah. Um, could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I think what happened between 2008 and 2016 was this perfect storm. The Internet started really taking, you know, my podcast started in 2005. Mormon blog started in 2004. So you let those percolate for a few years. Facebook comes on the scene and you start having the ability of Mormons to communicate with each other in mass uh, in ways that never happened before. So mass dissemination of Internet of, of information through the internet and Google and Facebook. That's one perfect storm. Then you also have Mitt Romney running for president two consecutive terms. That brings, the, you know, Lori Goodstein from the New York Times to Utah wanting to find stories on Mormonism because everyone thinking about Mormonism because Mitt Romney's running for president. Um, and then you have something like Proposition 8 where the church tries to intervene in the legislative process of an entire sovereign state 
uh, and that was activating for a lot of people. And then you have Kate Kelly coming on board. Those eight years were just, it was just sort of like this Camelot time period of interest in Mormonism, of dissemination of information, and of hope that all of this would lead to progress in the church. And in terms of the result of that, I actually, if I'm being completely fair and honest, it's it's ambivalent. It's it's good and bad. Of course, you have awful examples of the church stepping on ordained women, excommunicating me, um, and and releasing its 2015 November 2015 policy on LGBT individuals, making same-sex marriage automatically grounds for apostasy and prohibiting the children of LGBT married couples from even being baptized or advancing within the ranks of the church. Like, that's depressing, sad, awful news. On the other hand, the church with the Joseph Smith Paper Project is releasing all this information about Joseph Smith's original writings. They publish Rough Stone Rolling, which is a book that is a little bit boring and tedious to read, and is definitely an apologetic work, but at the same time, it talks openly about the same things that Fawn Brody talked about um, in, in 1946. In fact, I think Fawn Brody was the most cited reference in Joseph Smith Rough Stone Rolling. And then that leads uh, to the church releasing these essays, these gospel topic essays, where they're openly addressing the multiple versions of Joseph Smith's first vision, Joseph Smith's polygamy, uh, you know, the, the Masonic connection between the, the church temple ceremony and the Masonic Lodge. You know, we have the church itself releasing this information that before it had been denying and punishing people for talking about. We have the church openly talking about it. Now, ironically, in 2017, the average Mormon, even in Utah, still has never heard that these essays have been published, let alone read them. And many people, when they find out and read them, actually dismiss them as anti-Mormon literature. And so uh, all is not well in Zion. Uh, there's still a long, long way to go in terms of marriage equality, in terms of support of dissent and intellectual vitality, um, and of course, LGBT rights, etc. Um, and the patriarchy and the gerontocracy and all that stuff is still raging, maybe almost retrenching um, and becoming more conservative. So it's, but it wouldn't be fair to say it's all bad. It's, yeah. it's a mix of good and bad. Well, yeah, and you, on at least one occasion, were, were wondering, at least pondering, whether it was a win for the church authorities that uh, we haven't heard anything out of ordained women. Uh, Kate Kelly had left the country for a while, came back, but she's no longer active. I guess the entire board virtually was uh, was forced out by threats of excommunication and people losing church offices and stuff. So to a lot of people at least, they're seeing that this was crushed. This rebellion was crushed. But you're arguing though that it may have spawned this, the uh, essays and things, the more openness in that. Well, absolutely, this this sort of Camelot years r resulted in more transparency from the church in terms of history and doctrine, absolutely. And even though I do believe that ordained women was sort of punched in the gut in the sense that um, it was beaten down, number one, they're, they're still aboard and they're still, um, you know, doing some things, um, but also 
anyone who's looked at the history would acknowledge that the church used to not really put the women up on the stand during general conference, or at least if they were up there, they were sort of marginalized. Now the women are sort of front and center, uh, you know, in general conference, that's an achievement. They used to never broadcast the, the men's priesthood session to the general public. Now they do. Um, women used to, you know, in, in leadership positions on the on Mormon missions, there were no leadership positions for women. They've now created more leadership type positions for women. Um, and and I think the church has tried in its publications and in its doctrine and in its uh, educational resources to be much more sensitive and respectful to women. I don't think a, a, a hardcore feminist is going to be at all satisfied with the fact that it's still led by by white middle class, you know, men. Uh, but of at the same age. time, of a certain age, yeah. Um, but but I think you have to say that ordained women definitely struck fear into the church and made important changes, and they're still around. So maybe we don't count them out. Maybe they've got some some things to surprise us with in the in the days ahead. Well, and this would seem to give hope at least to uh, a lot of people that I know and our friends who who were had their doubts about their religion, but thought there would be a place for them with their doubts because they heard you doing your podcast and not being stepped on. And then when you got stepped on, at least at least in the immediate aftermath, uh, they were kind of crushed because they thought the door had slammed shut. And so is this a message of hope to them that that there's some ashes smoldering out there? <laughs> uh, well, yes and no. So I'll give the yes first. Here's the hope and then I'll, I'll, I'll uh, temper the hope. If the Mormon church has shown anything over the past hundred and whatever, 70, 80 years of its history, it's that it's capable of dramatic change. So it used to be a requirement to get to the highest degree of heaven to enter into a polygamous marriage. Not only did the church abandon the practice of polygamy in this world, uh, but now they, they, you know, Gordon B. Hinckley was quoted as saying it's no longer doctrinal. So that's not true because it's still in the Doctrine and Covenants, but, you know, it's a very different thing with the top leaders and top members practicing polygamy to now, as a PR spin, we're actually distancing ourselves from it. That's a significant change. Uh, the church used to keep black, well, first they allowed blacks to have the priesthood, black men, then they took it away from black men for over 100 years. And then, of course, in 1978, what used to be doctrine, which was institutionalized racism, all of a sudden God changed his mind about black people, and black people were allowed to, black men were allowed to have the priesthood and participate in the church fully. That's a dramatic change. Um, so, uh, and, and I think I've already cited the instances where the church would punish and squelch and deceive about its own history, where now it's being very open and public about its history once it was beat to the point of having to make those concessions. So anyone who wants hope that eventually the Mormon church will, quote, get it right, I think there's hope. Um, the only asterisk to that is that you sort of have to wait about 30 years after the rest of the United States sort of all comes to a unanimous agreement about a certain element of change. So if you have enough time in your life, and if you're okay with the collateral damage that 
women, people of color, LGBT people, you know, others experience at the hand of the church's outdated and or barbaric medieval policies in the meantime, then yeah, there's a lot of reason for hope. So the, the way to temper that hope is just by me saying, you know, how many divorces, how many depressed women, how much suicide can you stomach giving your money and reputation and time to a church that is literally causing youth to kill themselves at three times, two or three times the national average. If you're okay with that collateral damage, keep paying your money to the church, keep giving your time and reputation to the church because the benefit is worth that cost. And the question that I'm asking is, is that acceptable? And is that collateral damage acceptable? Now, some Mormons say, no, that collateral damage is unacceptable. I'm going to stay in the church and try and make it better from within. And I say, Heavenly Father, bless you. I tried that. It didn't work for me. But you know what? If enough, you know, in the civil rights movement, once they filled up the jails, there weren't, there wasn't any more room to put people in the jails. And so if enough Mormons speak out and stand up and stand up for what's right, like the Savannah young 12-year-old girl did recently, if enough Mormons speak up and act out from within, and there's enough pressure from without to keep the church honest and to hold the church's feet to the fire, maybe we'll have less collateral damage and accelerated change. Let me shift gears here a little bit. I just something I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up, but but it's it seems that you recently had a clash with Kate Kelly over some of these very various these very subjects, uh, the patriarchy, in that she felt that women um, bloggers weren't being paid the same as male bloggers. What? How did that? And I read the the back and forth, but I just wanted to to get your thoughts on that and. How did that shake out? Yeah, so it is. Uh, so this is just a really. So here's an example of something that happened that made me really sad. So I start podcasting very early, and it takes four or five years. But eventually, there's enough donations for the podcast for me to start making an uh, okay living from the podcast. Yeah. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, um, and I'm really glad that happened. And I think there's a lot of people that are grateful for the work we've done. And I couldn't have done the work without getting paid. I don't do it for the money, but I need money to do it, right? Mm -hmm. Then Kate Kelly, who donated so much time and so much energy to advancing an important cause within the church, she went out and just said, hey, my computers are kind of old. I need a laptop. Could I raise $2,000, right? Well, it was like the whole internet came unglued and and made fun of her and mocked her and shamed her for raising $2,000. So like the Open Stories Foundation that I worked for, you know, at one point it was making nothing, but it, you know, a couple years later, five years later, it's making 40,000 and then 80,000. And then now it's whatever it is now, over $100,000, well over $100,000. You've been very transparent about yeah, it. Always. But I can see why Kate's really angry that that on the one hand, the Open Stories Foundation can, can generate a, an income that allows it to be supported, and she can't raise $2,000 for a laptop. That's a double standard, and it's gross. Like, it makes me ill. Mm -hmm. And it's also true that there are other female podcasters out there that do great work, and they don't receive the donations that Mormon Stories Podcast does. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. 
I think the biggest reason is I've been doing it 12 years. So you, you know, over time you build a reputation. If you do a good job, donations come. I didn't get immediate large amounts of money the first five years I did it. I did it as an act of love and I grew it slowly. Having said that, um, I'm sure that the patriarchy that is infested Mormonism uh, affects post-Mormons to the extent to which they have bias and may prefer a male, a white, cisgendered, straight, you know, middle-class, middle-aged guy. Yeah, they're kind of conditioned to maybe prefer that over a woman. So, so I, I, you know, I don't love the way that, that Kate took that argument to the internet to publicly shame me because I feel like I'm on the side of feminists. I feel like I've sacrificed a great deal for Kate. You know, my excommunication was triggered in part by my support of ordained women. I've been there for Kate for years, supporting privately and publicly what she does. And I feel like I'm on the side of feminism. So I'm deeply hurt by her attacking me publicly and mm -hmm. trying to shame me and honestly spread significant misinformation about the Open Stories Foundation and me and what we do. That makes me really sad to come from a friend that I've been supportive of. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, I get her sadness and I get her frustration. I support what she's trying to do. And I will never stop wanting women to receive equal or superior pay and, and for our society to become less patriarchal and more uh, diverse and tolerant because I think we all suffer when women are held back. I think we all suffer. So that's my, so I wish Kate well, and I, I wish we could work together to do positive things and not try and take each other down mm -hmm. publicly in a shaming, unproductive and way. And it seems like the uh, or, more orthodox trolls delight in this flash. Yeah, they do. But that doesn't mean anyone should be above scrutiny. Mm -hmm. I welcome criticism, but I don't welcome lies and misinformation and public shaming. But I do I do very much welcome a, you know, respectful, well-intended dialogue and criticism. Um to get back on track again, I just felt that we should address that. Um how did all of this, the Camelot followed. Now we talked about how the church seems to be opening up the archives more, but um, the church has always been um, very sensitive to public image outside of its membership, and they have a powerful public relations arm, as I'm sure you're aware. And um, how did they come out of the excommunication? Uh, of you and Kate and all that went around it, plus being followed by the uh, the the order that that the children of gay uh, gay parents uh, could not be baptized and had to wait and things. Did the church suffer any damage from this? The answer is yes and no. Uh, there's this really good book um, called The Angel and the Beehive by a scholar named Armin Moss, and he talks about the church's history of being progressive and changing and then retrenching. And it's always sort of this pendulum going back and forth. And the, the issue is if you become too progressive, you know, your members start saying, well, you're just changing, you're just doing whatever society's doing. You're not really, and we're no different than everybody else. We're just similar. So. The church changes because it's forced to and because it can't stay 
these long-bearded polygamists of the 19th century. So the church will change and make progress to accommodate pressures and social change. But then when it goes too far and it starts feeling too like everybody else and not distinct enough and not vital enough, what it does is it retrenches. And it always oscillates back between those two. So in doing that, um, what the church has done with excommunicating me, with um, excommunicating Kate, with ordained women, with all these different things, with the LGBT policy is, it's basically lost its more liberal, progressive, you know, conservative members for the most part, and it's damaged its reputation amongst liberal and progressive people outside of Mormonism. So it definitely has taken a hit from that perspective. And it's, if you were to ask me, is the church viewed more like Scientologists and Jehovah's Witness or less like Scientologists and Jehovah's Witness in 2017 than it, than it was viewed in 2004? I'd say the church is viewed more like Scientologists and, and Moonies and, and whoever. It's damaged its reputation and it has lost tens of thousands of its more educated, affluent, um, members. Now, what has it gained? It's gained, it's reassured the older generations. It has um, strengthened its more conservative uh, members. It's forged allies with the Catholic Church and evangelicals and the more, you know, the religious right. Um, and in some ways, it's strengthened its uniqueness and its persecution from the surrounding culture. And believe it or not, a high demand religion that's different from the surrounding culture actually tends to grow at a faster rate than look at Presbyterians or Lutherans or, or Methodists or Unitarians that are all bleeding. So the church is not growing, but it's not bleeding. It's sort of limping, but still slightly growing at like 1%. So I don't think strategically the church in the short term has made a, an error. I think the church actually preserved itself and maybe even strengthened itself in some ways by retrenching. What they've done is they've made this bet. What, what they're losing is the young generation. So the 20-somethings, the millennials, word is that 80% of them have already left the church. And, and I'm sure that the younger generations are, are, have, the, have the risk of even being worse off. And so the question for the Mormon church is, have you mortgaged your future to keep your, your base? And who wants to alienate your base and lose the future? Because there's no guarantee if they were to accommodate progressives, that they wouldn't lose all their base and the progressives would leave too. And so I think they made a rational decision, which was to focus on, on firming up their base. Mm -hmm. But the question is, will that damage the church in the long run with the younger generations that are coming? And mm -hmm. that looks a little bit bleak, but if the Catholic Church can survive institutional pedophilia for, for decades, the Mormon church has billions of dollars in the bank and culture and family and, and money on its side. I wouldn't count the church out as, as dying anytime soon. It just may slow in growth and, yeah. and weaken in some areas of its influence. Yeah. Well, to leave this sort of Machiavellian view of religion and the LDS church for a second, I'd just sort of like to wrap this up with a final question. And that is, in all these podcasts you've done and videos and things, um, was there any one or a couple that were particularly memorable to you or you felt showed the power of what 
you were trying to do through the podcast. I know the recent Savannah one, because of her, was very, very affecting. But but you've done hundreds. Uh, do you remember one that, in particular, you thought made the hair stand on the back of your neck and gave you chills? There's a few of those. I think probably the most important one. I mean, there's a few runner runner ups. So Jeremy Runnels is a young man that wrote this internet document called Letter to a CES Director that like in 80 pages lays out all the major problems with the church's truth claims. That was a really important episode. The interview with Hans Matson, who is an area authority from Sweden who has left the church um, after being one of the church's top leaders. That was obviously an influential one. But I think the most maybe the most one of the most important ones that I've done is an interview with a man named Tom Phillips. Tom Phillips was a stake president for the LDS Church twice in England and I think in South Africa. And he advanced so far up in the church's hierarchy that he received the secret special church ordinance called the Second Anointing, where he's actually goes into the temple with his wife and is promised by an apostle of the church that he's made it to the celestial kingdom, that no matter what he does in his life, he will be in the celestial kingdom uh, as a god, which is, you know, core Mormon doctrine. And in spite of receiving that secret ordinance, which most Mormons don't even know about, um, he still learned about problems with the church and decided to leave it. And I think it's that, and then probably the other one I'd have to say is the most important one I've done is with a, with a Yale archaeologist named Michael Coe, C-O-E is his last name, and he is the world's expert in Mesoamerica, Middle America, during the time that the Book of Mormon was supposed to have been sort of like living out its history. And I interview him about the claims in the Book of Mormon. And it's a really powerful part of the interview where I ask this man, um, you know, the Book of Mormon mentions horses. Were there horses during this time? And he says, no. And the Book of Mormon mentions wheat. Was there wheat with Native Americans during this time? No. The Book of Mormon mentions, you know, steel and swords and helmets. Were there steels and swords and helmets in middle America during this time and he says no and the DNA evidence it basically destroys any credibility of the Book of Mormon as a historical document and as being anything other than a a, a 19th century work of fiction by Joseph Smith so I'd say Michael Coe Tom Phillips uh, would be the top two and folks can uh, of course dig those out of your website absolutely and listen to it Uh, this is uh, Salt Lake Speaks with Glenn Wurchell, Managing Editor at Salt Lake Magazine, and we have been interviewing John DeLynn, uh, who has a PhD in psychology, but of course is best known for his ten, more than 10 years of, of uh, Mormon stories and other podcasts he's done uh, exploring Mormon culture. Uh, Thank you very much. You can hear this podcast and others at saltlakemagazine.com slash podcast.